You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Our hearts have been prepared by these songs that we have sung, and I'm always so grateful for the way the Lord works with our team to select songs that fit so well, and I hope that you recognize that and you may even notice that this morning. As I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Yes, we are entering back into this extended preaching series, which we have been in for most of the year, with the exception of the last month or so as we considered how and why we love the Bible and gained so much help and and, uh, strength, spiritual strength, from that series of sermons. Now we resume our preaching through the book of Revelation, and we are here in chapter 12. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, you can find that, of course, almost at the very end of the Bible on page 195, page 195. Well, things are not as they seem, are they? We know that this is a difficult world to live in, and one of the things I think makes this world difficult as fallen creatures in a fallen world walking with a sovereign God is that things often are not as they seem. You probably find this in your own experience. There are times when things seem one way, but later you learn they're quite different. Perhaps you think that things are really, really going badly, and then you find out that they weren't as bad as they seemed. And in some rare occasions, we might even think that things are going very, very well, and in fact, they're not going as well as we thought. Things are not as they seem. Just as you've sometimes looked over at that passenger side view mirror, you know what it says on the bottom of it. Things, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Even there, things are not always as they seem. This is another reason why we must be so careful and in tune with the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that helps us to make sense of the two realities in which we live. This may ring a bell for some of you. It may be new for others. We've often talked in our church about two realities in which we live. The seen reality and the unseen reality. Now, it should be pretty obvious which is which. The seen reality is the one that's right there before us. It's before our eyes. We see it. We experience it. It is often the way things seem. But we also know from Scripture that there is an unseen reality. There are things happening behind the scenes, in the unseen, where our natural eyes cannot see. And while both are important, there is one that reigns supreme. There is only one that we can truly live by. We must live by the unseen reality. Because it's in the unseen reality where God is working. But that's what makes it so difficult. It's unseen. But it is that reminder in the deepest of senses that things are not always as they seem. And for many of us, myself included, often the reality I am slowest to pick up on or be in tune with is the unseen one. I'm great at looking at my life and making interpretations about how it's going and, 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 and thinking about situations right in front of my eyes, almost to the total neglect of the unseen reality, that there is a sovereign God who loves me and cares for me, who gave his son for me, who is granted by faith in Christ his Holy Spirit to live within me, who is ever leading me into all truth, who is ordaining 
and orchestrating every affair of my life and yours for my good and his glory. That unseen reality for me so often is out the window in a moment. And I'm left living in the seen reality of my life. And then I look back and I wonder, why is life so hard? Why do I have such a difficult time with so many different things? Could it be? Could it be? I need to live more in the unseen. I need to know where God is working, what he is doing, and I need that ever reminder. Well, it's good that we come to this text at this point, moving back into our preaching series in the book of Revelation, because actually in God's sovereign providence, we are coming to Revelation chapter 12, driving back onto the entrance ramp of this book of scripture, and we're doing it at a really important place. We're doing it at what many see as the hinge of the book. It is a place where everything turns, and in fact, it gives us, entering right back in, this helpful truth, this helpful reminder that not only describes the future days of Revelation, but also feeds back into our present life. That's why we have named this sermon series, Finding Present Help Through Our Future Hope. We don't want to just know about the future. We're not just speculating about things to come. We want the word of God to speak to our today, to our present moment, and I believe that will happen yet again for us as we consider three truths that have almost always been true, and they certainly always will be true until the very end. Here's the first truth that we want to see this morning from Revelation 12, 1 through 6. It is one that we need to carry with us at the very center of our hearts at all times, And that is this reminder, this truth, that God has a plan. God has a plan for our ultimate salvation. This is that reminder of his control and his thoughtfulness about us in the world, that he does not just live day to day to day, making it up as he goes along, but rather that he always has, he always does, and he always will have a perfect sovereign plan for our ultimate salvation. We see that reflected in this incredible scene which involves a woman, a child, and a dragon. We begin here by considering this woman. God's salvation in the beginning of Revelation 12 is symbolized by a special woman who is bringing a child into the world. Now, of course, we know because of the rest of Scripture, looking at this person, who it is. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. We know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, this child. But the question remains, who is this woman? Is it an actual woman or is it a symbolic woman? I think that it's a symbolic woman. I think that this is not Mary because of the way that she is described, but rather that this is symbolic for all of God's covenant people at all times in history. This is what the Bible often refers to as the elect or the chosen people of God. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and then on into the New Testament, after Jesus comes and the gospel spreads to all the earth, the apostle Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and all the nations, according to God's eternal plan, are coming together into his kingdom. We see this great sign appeared in heaven. Verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant 
and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Notice some of the ways that this woman is described. She is described with brightness. She is described first as having the sun clothing her. Uh, Another picture of brightness is the moon beneath her feet. Certainly there's a a contrast here in the book of Revelation of this, this woman who is symbolizing God's people and his work among his elect, that there's a difference between darkness and light. She's full of light. She's clothed in light. The sun reflects perhaps her beauty, her radiance, the moon under her feet representing perhaps the authority, the crown of royal status. The 12 stars reminds us back into the Old Testament of Joseph's brothers who give their names to the 12 tribes of Israel. But when we look at this woman and we look at the situation in which she is in and what she is experiencing, we see that this is not a serene scene. Not only is she pregnant, bringing all of those difficulties into the symbolic description, but she's also in pain. Perhaps a reminder of the the birth pains of God bringing forth his chosen people through this fallen world. A reminder of the curse of sin and all of the difficulty and suffering that comes along with it. Even the condition of sin, which she is giving birth to a child. Someone is coming from her who will take on this pain and this suffering. That's why I believe this woman represents the people of God in all ages. The embodiment of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his seed from which the Messiah comes. This is an incredible reminder and picture of how we have come to faith in Christ. It's a reminder of how we have come into God's covenant family because it's looking back again to the covenant promises that God made to Abraham, someone that he called from Ur of the Chaldees who was a pagan and he called and made a covenant with him that wasn't a two-way covenant. It was a one-way covenant in which God would provide all of the conditions so that Abraham would have the promise. No matter what happened, God was going to ensure that this covenant was going to come to fruition. And as a result of that, that Abraham would receive the promise, which was that he would become the father of a great nation, a multitude of people from all around the world. And therefore, many of us, perhaps all of us, who are not a part ethnically of the original chosen people of Israel, see ourselves as Gentiles from the nations of the world. And you are here because of those covenant promises. You can see yourself as part of this people. So as we move forward in the book of Revelation, even in this text, she's a reminder of how we have salvation. And we have salvation because of an interesting word the Bible uses, and it's the word grafted in. That we as people from the nations of the world have been grafted into the chosen people of Israel by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. This is a beautiful picture for us to remember. This is a moment for us to celebrate who we are and how we have come here. You know, right now in our world, there are many important things happening. One was the recent overturning of Roe. And this means in our world, in the present moment, that this will be an occasion for adoption to shine. Our world is going to have 
an, an incredible number of people coming into the world who need care, who need adoption. And we as Christians who look at our Bibles know that we are people of all people who ought to understand adoption. Because that is how we have come in to God's chosen people. We have been adopted. This is a beautiful reality that we know as Christians because we have been grafted in. Remember what Paul said in this little part of Romans eleven eighteen. He said, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. He was talking to people who may feel as though they were, they were arrogant, as though they had been set apart in a way that, that others had not. And rather, he reminded them, in particular, if they were exalting themselves over the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, he reminded them, you have been grafted in. The root is supporting you. You have become part of this chosen people by grace, through faith. And therefore, as we see this woman writhing in the pains of labor. In fact, she's over and over again crying out. We ought to be reminded of how we have come into this covenant family of God. We have come in by grace and been grafted in. So the first use of this text for our present day lives, I think, is for us very simply to recall that by faith, we belong to this woman. We belong to the people who this woman symbolizes, the chosen people of God in history. And therefore, the more that we recall that by faith, the more that we remember who we are, where we have come from, and how we have become part of this great kingdom that God is building, the more that our hearts ought to be refreshed, knowing that we belong to the chosen people of God, not arrogantly, not because of anything that we have done, not because of our own righteousness, not because we kept all the laws or we were smart enough to make the right decisions or we were clever enough to pray the right prayers, but rather that God, by his grace, has been merciful to us and has called us to himself into his covenant family. And there is here, though, a serious implication that we see unfold in the very next verses. In verses three and four, we see a truth that we often recognize in this world playing out in a very spiritual and profound way. And it is the truth that every great thing in the world draws out enemies and detractors. Have you ever heard that sort of, I don't know where it came from, if it's an American proverb, certainly a modern kind of proverb, it's not very catchy, but it gets the point across when it says, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Have you ever heard that? That's a proverb that reminds us that no matter what you do in this world, when you are on a mission, when you are on a quest, when you are endeavoring to accomplish something, it will, for some reason, draw out the detractors, draw out the opponents. And that has never been more true than in this spiritual scene that plays out in this text and across the pages of Scripture. It cannot be overstated then that as God is working his redemptive plan in the world, it is drawn out in the most profound way, the most profound enemy you could ever imagine. And that brings us to the second truth that we ought to remember. If we want to live the way things are, 
and not be duped into how they seem because when we look at texts like this or we look at other situations in our lives or other places in Scripture where hard things are going on, we've certainly seen a lot of those in the book of Revelation, we can be tempted to think that everything is out of control. But in fact, we need these truths to remind us just who is in control. So we see the second truth, that God's redemptive plan has certainly brought out an enemy, and our enemy has a plan as well. He has a counter plan to stop God. Now, just as in the first two verses of Revelation 12, there is a woman who is, symbol, who is symbolizing the church, the devil, our enemy, is symbolized also, but as a red dragon. Now, I think this is, again, a symbol like the woman, not an actual person. It's not a specific person like perhaps the, the coming beast of Revelation. But we do know who the author of Revelation means when he refers to this red dragon. He means our enemy, Satan, who is the devil. Because in verse 9, he actually names him. And passage after passage, we read back into the book of Genesis to even explain the descent of Satan. And we see some of that here in these verses 3 and 4. Notice what it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. And his tail swept, or rather was sweeping, away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, the worship team sent a funny text this week asking if I had any song requests. Sometimes that happens. And said they were having some trouble finding the child-devouring dragon songs in our list of songs on Planning Center, so they were going to pick some others that seemed to fit the text. But isn't that true? It's difficult to wrap our minds around this. This is terrifying, incredible language that's being used to describe this situation that is symbolizing this situation of Satan and his counter plan to stop God. He knows apparently what God's plan is. He knows that it hinges and all of the hope rests upon this child who is coming into the world. And therefore, he is waiting. You can, you can see him in your mind's eye by the description that is given in incredible hatred and anger and seriousness, vehemently waiting, panting, so that he might devour her child if he could stop this incredible redemptive plan. But notice some of the ways that he's described. It helps us to get our minds around this. He has seven heads perhaps symbolizing princely authority. Ten horns symbolizing great strength. To the readers of this text, the image of a dragon represented coming war. Notice also his color. The color red is the same as the second of the four horsemen. Do you remember what the, that horseman did in the earth? That horseman took peace from the earth. All of this is being put together to put on display a picture of an incredible enemy that has been drawn out by an incredible plan. And this enemy is bent on destruction. He is an enemy like no other. You think that you have had enemies at work? You think that you have had enemies in your neighborhood or in your family? 
You think you have had enemies in the government? You think you have enemies around the world? You have no enemy. I have no enemy like this. This is the ultimate, ultimate enemy. Listen to what one commentator said about this enemy and what he does. It says he tried to convince us that we're not Christians, thus robbing us of the assurance of our faith. He has the the crowns and the, the horns and dominates the whole earth. He is at work around us everywhere, in our homes, in our schools, offices, our work sites, in governments throughout the nations. We need to see what a massive foe Satan really is. He is the dragon, the serpent, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. I thought it could be helpful as we're gathering this picture of this enemy as a counterplan to stop God, just to be reminded of what the word of God says about him in a few other places. Some of those key terms or descriptions that are used, one that you just heard, accuser of the brethren, that comes up just not far away from where we are now in Revelation 12. In verse 10, it says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before God night and day. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting the way that he works before God to constantly accuse us as though God's grace is not enough? as though still there is some penalty that we owe, thus minimizing and detracting from the perfect salvation that Christ has provided for his people. He is the accuser of the brethren. Now keep these in mind, not just for the sake of understanding this text and others, but keep it in mind for understanding your life. Because just as you, by faith in Christ, belong to this woman, the covenant people of God, from whom the Messiah has come into the world to redeem us and people from every nation. He is your enemy. And the Bible is giving you hints or directions about how he intends to deal with you. He intends to be your accuser. But not only that, he intends to be your tempter, as the Bible says. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be for nothing. The Apostle Paul took this tempting power of the devil quite seriously. He was concerned that all of their ministry and work could have been for nothing. Why? Because the devil had tempted the people, tempted them to leave the truth, tempted them to direct their eyes away from God and onto themselves and a myriad of other temptations. And not only that, he's the accuser of the brethren, he's the tempter, he's also a liar and a murderer. The Bible uses such plain, vibrant language to communicate to us the nature of our enemy, and this is on purpose. Listen to John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. 
This should put us on a kind of guard against our enemy, the devil, to be aware of his wiles and his temptations and his lies and his murderous heart as the accuser of the brethren. Why? Because he doesn't wish to work woe some people out in the world. He wishes to work woe you. He wants to take you. He wants to defeat you. He wants to pull you away from Christ, if possibly he could. If he could undo God's electing work in your heart and the gift of faith that he has granted to you and the Holy Spirit who is the deposit of your faith, who seals you for the day of redemption, he would do it in a moment. And he would do it with a smile on his face. But because he can't, he will keep working in every way that he can. And therefore, the word of God wants us to be aware and wants us to know the truth so that we can stand against his schemes. Things are not as they seem. Seems to me that things are not as they seem in a major way, even when it comes to the devil. You know, if I had not given you this description of the devil, and I had asked you to think about the devil in your mind or the picture that you have, it's most likely that you would draw to to mind the picture that I have of the devil. He's kind of a scrawny guy. He's got long arms and legs. He's painted red. He's got two horns. He's got kind of an ugly mangled face, but he's got a red cape that kind of flows off of his back and a, and a tail sticking out and a pitchfork in his hand. That's the picture. Now, that picture certainly doesn't line up to what we read about in Scripture. In fact, I think that if you take those two pictures, they are nothing like each other. They're nothing like each other, other than maybe the color And a couple of horns, one has been dumbed down. One has been weakened. One has been sensationalized. Things are not as they seem. It would seem that the devil is like that. Yes, sort of disturbing, but really not a big deal. More like a Halloween costume. Where do you think that idea came from? I wonder. Did it come from him? The Bible also says that he masquerades as an angel of light. He and his work would be perfectly happy to appear peaceful and innocent and harmless, even helpful, so that he might delude you, trick you. He has no shame in dressing up like his opposite in order for you to fall in with him. Think about all of the other ways that this happens in our world around the devil, how little he is of concern, how much he is minimized, how, how little the world even goes about recognizing that the things that the world naturally does flow out of their father, the devil, who was our father before we came to Christ. Think about the way we talk about food, one of my favorite, favorite foods, deviled eggs. That's the kind of thing that we have done with the idea of the devil. A little egg, soft, spicy. That's all the devil is. He's just a little egg, soft and spicy. No worries about that. But things are not as they seem, are they? He is a killer. But also, as one theologian noted, he knows that every time the gospel is preached, death is near. 
So he must try to defeat the woman's child, and that is his desire. There he is, waiting, so that at the very first opportune moment, he might devour her child. The second use or application of our text this morning is simply this. We ought to be, we really better be, sober-minded. In those moments when we are running in a direction clearly contrary to Scripture and making all kinds of excuses for why it's right and why it's good, be sober-minded. Because it's not the Lord who says that it's right. It's the devil who says that. It's temptation. It's our own fallen sinful hearts that say that. And therefore, we ought to be sober-minded. When we are doubting the salvation God has provided for us in Christ, that is not the voice of God, is it? It is the voice of the devil. It's the voice of our own fallen hearts still crying out against the good news of Christ. Be sober-minded. Be careful. Be on guard. It's the continual refrain of Scripture. But Scripture does not say be obsessed. Scripture does not say to be consumed. Scripture says to be sober-minded. And the reason that we don't need to be obsessed with the devil is because we have good news, don't we? And that's what we want to see last, is that his good news brings us a message of sovereign and total victory. This is another one of those ways that things are not quite as they seem when we experience sin in the world or our own sin and difficulty, the temptations and trials of what it means to live here and to be here. Sometimes it seems like ultimate victory is not going to come. But friends, again, we have to remind ourselves that things in that moment are not as they seem and come back yet again to what God has declared to us in Scripture on so many pages, in so many words, and even in this next picture of verses 5 and 6. Because it's here that we find this truth. In addition to the fact that God has a plan for our ultimate salvation and that our enemy has a counter plan to stop God if he would, number three, that God's plan in Christ will always triumph. Because of the Son of God and our faith in Him, we will triumph with Him. And the devil, though he may try hard, will not find his way. He will not accomplish his plan. And we see this so beautifully declared to us in these two verses. Look at this. The child that's described in this text is unlike the woman and the dragon because The child is not a symbol. This child is actually a person. And we know who this person is. This person is the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, died, and rose again for us. This person is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who has always lived and always will live and is the conquering king of the world. But as with the woman and the dragon, we want to consider the child. Notice what the Bible says about this child. She gave birth to a son, a male. There's no mistaking him as the coming redeemer king of the world, talked about throughout scripture from the very beginning to the very end. It goes on to say that he is the one who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
We read about that in Psalm 2. If you flip right back over there, you see these incredible words, and you're blessed. We are blessed by the unity of Scripture when we notice this. It ought to refresh our hearts and encourage us to have all the more confidence in the Word of God because we see the way that all of the words work together because they're under God's control. Look at Psalm 2, verse 7. He says, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. It even goes on and talks about the sun again in verse 12, giving this instruction, kiss the sun that he not be angry with you and you perish on the way for his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a beautiful cross-reference of Scripture that we should really note and come back to. Maybe we could come back to that in our community groups this week or our own personal study of God's Word just to marvel at the way that the Word of God works together and declares this unified story and, and situation to us just as we see battle all around us, nation against nation. Even animals in the wild against each other, you see them, their horns locked claws slashing. But even here, we see that there is no battle like the one between Satan and Christ. You've seen the dragon here waiting, waiting, waiting. What is going to happen? Well, it says in verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male, who's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, just as we read in Psalm 2. But then something amazing happens. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You can't, you're getting the picture, right? You're getting the picture of the symbolic woman who is writhing in labor pains about to give birth to the king of the universe, the redeemer of the world, and his enemy, a red dragon, is waiting, panting, salivating, dripping with sweat, can't wait to consume the child as soon as he enters the world. And in that moment, it would appear, wouldn't it, that there is no escape there's no escape. There's no margin for error. There's no escape route. There's no room, is there? But things are not always as they seem, are they? Because this child is caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1260 days. This child has escaped. He has faced this enemy who is waiting without any room of escape, and yet he escapes. And how does he do this? How does he fly away? What does that mean that he's caught up to God and to his throne? I think we see another beautiful picture of the gospel at work. God's Savior and God's people are caught away, and they escape the plot of the devil through Golgotha, through the place of Christ's death and ultimately his resurrection and then his ascension, Jesus defeats the gospel with what? Jesus defeats the gospel with what? Jesus defeats the devil. I think I said gospel. So that's a hint. Okay. Let's rewind that. (laughs) 
Scratch that. Jesus defeats the devil with what? With the gospel. How did you know that? Man. Seriously, though. Jesus defeats the devil with the gospel. With his life and his death and his resurrection, he defeats the devil by the very thing that saved you and me from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He defeats the devil by the very same message, the very same work that took us from being children of the devil. I know that's sensational hard language to take on ourselves. That's what the Bible says, children of the devil. And then to be adopted by him and grafted into his covenant family in Christ by the gospel. Why are we trying so hard in so many ways to make the gospel paramount? Because it is. It's even the way that Jesus has defeated the devil. How are we then to overcome or stand against the works of the devil in this world? This is the reason that Jesus came. You know that in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, and yet the works of the devil continue on and on. You're seeing them on the news. You're seeing them in your home. You're seeing them in yourself. So how does he intend to defeat them? The same way with the gospel. This is how we defeat the devil's work. How we are assured when he accuses us, the brethren. It's the gospel. It's the ongoing reminder and reflection upon what Jesus Christ has done for us and all that he has become to us because of his life, death, and resurrection. How are we to resist and overcome temptation? It is by the gospel. How are we to walk in the truth despite his lies and his murderous intentions? It's all through the gospel. Therefore, we all need this continual refrain and reminder in our lives that we ought to do everything for the sake of the gospel. This final application then is that we ought to make the gospel our ultimate weapon in the spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I know that you and I are tempted all the time to pick up other weapons. You and I pick up other weapons to use against our enemies. Things are not as they seem. We think that this person or this party, or this problem is our ultimate enemy. But things are not as they seem. We know who our ultimate enemy is. We know that we do not battle against flesh and blood. But in the same way, we think that there's some other weapon. We think that we should pick up something else in life in order to go after this pseudo-enemy. Not only missing the enemy, but using the wrong weapon. Therefore, we want to be reminding each other and reminding ourselves that the good news of Jesus Christ is our ultimate weapon. It's our ultimate weapon against sin in our own hearts. It's our ultimate weapon against the world, which is not a destructive weapon. It's a redeeming weapon. And it is our ultimate weapon against the devil. Because it is the, the armor of God. Go read in Ephesians 6, the armor of God, and notice just how gospelly all of those things are. It's the gospel 
It's the gospel. As we come to a close this morning, I want to give us one last encouragement to refresh our hearts, and it's words from a Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. When he reminded his people of something that we would do well to remember, even as we consider this text and the great enemy that we have, who has a counter plan to stop God, though he won't, we still will face him, that we need to keep our eyes on Christ. And this is what he said, learn much of the Lord Jesus For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For he is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan, or the flesh. Our Father, we need your grace. This work seems too big for us. But Lord, we know that things are not always as they seem. That it's because you are at work. We are not alone. In fact, there are four of us. And because there are four of us, and because you reign supreme, We are made up to this task by your good news. And so, Father, we do pray this morning that you would help us in every way to engage the world, the flesh, and the devil in biblical ways by looking to Christ and by knowing your grace and your help, which is ever-present. Make us students of your word. Make us students of you. Make us lovers of your good news. And make us violent with the gospel. We need you today, we need your help, and we give you thanks because we have it in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name then, amen.